This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In the history of the Ottoman Empire, the rule of Suleiman Khanouni, translated as Suleiman the Lawgiver, or known in popular culture as Suleiman the Magnificent, during the 1500s, is viewed as critical to the political history of the region. The empire near doubled in size. In popular culture, that period and its characters are known to us through the global phenomenon, the Magnificent Century, a Turkish historical TV drama. It's been dubbed in Arabic, Spanish, it's a hit on Netflix. However, if we look at sort of the other side of what was going on, a new study brings our eyes to its intellectual history during roughly the same period through the lens of the idea of the caliphate. And it has a surprising component, mysticism. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. My name is Ene Mansour Nadira, and I'm your host. Our guest today is Hussein Yulmaz, who is Associate Professor at George Mason University. He holds a PhD in history and Middle East studies from Harvard University. His research interests focus on the early modern Middle East, including political thought, geographic imageries, um, social movements, and cultural history. He is also director of the Ali Bural Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. Prior to his appointment at George Mason, he taught for the Introduction to the Humanities Program and Department of History at Stanford University and the Department of History at University of South Florida. His new book and the subject of our interview, Caliphate Redefined, The Mystical Turn in Ottoman Political Thought, out 2018 from Princeton University Press, is the first comprehensive study of pre-modern Ottoman political thought and focuses on the intersection of mysticism and the definition of authority. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, really excited to have you. I just want to reiterate, I love the book. I think it is definitely going to be used as a general introduction to Ottoman political thought, to these ideas of um, what what is a caliphate. It just, it lays such a good map for Ottoman intellectual history. So congratulations, it's it's truly an accomplishment. I know I'm going to be assigning it if I ever get the privilege of, to write syllabi. Glad to hear these. Thank you. So we always begin with a very basic question of how did you come to the academy? How did you come to your topic in particular for this book? Well, um, actually, it's the question uh, might be not how I came to the academia, uh, but how I could not come out of academia. Uh, so as soon as I came to academia, I found it difficult to get out uh, because I basically enjoyed uh, the freedom uh, that it accorded me to speak, uh, to write, uh, to research uh, what I wanted to do. 
uh, and since then uh, I enjoyed basically that uh, freedom uh, and continued. Uh, but my, what triggered uh, actually my professional career in academia was um, I was uh, sort of uh, quite undecided what to do after my BA and uh, sort of as an intermediary uh, course of action. I was in an MA uh, program. Uh, and just by um, luck or fortune, uh, the late Halil Inaljik uh, came from the United States to Turkey to teach. Uh, and his uh, style of teaching, his personality, his depth of uh, knowledge uh, just uh, mesmerized uh, all of his students, including uh, myself. Uh, and after working with him for about uh, a semester, um, he also encouraged me. Uh, to continue with the um, Ottoman history. Uh, so that was the turning point uh, in my career uh, prospects. So uh, in his uh, persona, uh, actually, uh, I realized the significance and excitement of being uh, a historian of Ottoman uh, Empire. And since then, I am in the academia. And how did you come to your topic specifically? Uh, the coming to the topic has a longer um, history. I was always, uh, those questions bugged me uh, since um, I came in contact with any aspect of uh, Ottoman history. Who were the um, Ottomans? Uh, what did they uh, think? How did they come about? Uh, what Ottoman being an Ottoman uh, meant? Um, to wh- what were their uh, cultural, literary, linguistic um, origins, um, myths, uh, if you will. So all these questions in in very nascent forms uh, interested me uh, from the very beginning. Of of course, um, the very education I received uh, in high school uh, plus uh, popular visual um, uh, cultural productions uh, all fed uh, into those uh, interests. And when I uh, seriously start to read uh, about in uh, history, uh, then I found that there are certain questions uh, which are, were treated quite uh, superficially, uh, and especially the intellectual uh, and cultural component of Ottoman history, uh, I realized very much uh, was uh, missing uh, from the uh, general narratives uh, about Ottoman or world um, history. So what I uh, tried to do from my early days of uh, serious engaged uh, engage, serious engagement of Ottoman history uh, was to see uh, what did the Ottomans uh, actually think, uh, which sources uh, they read, uh, and wrote uh, which um, schools of thought or intellectual traditions uh, they subscribed, uh, engaged, reworked, uh, promoted, etc. Uh, so in that regard, um, I was increasingly drawn uh, into the depths of intellectual history, which was uh, especially in the broader orientalistic um, scholarship uh, was quite undermined. The Ottoman history or period was considered to be a sterile uh, period in which uh, the broader 
strains of um, uh, intellectual history formed, uh, reached their sophistication uh, during the so-called age of uh, golden age of uh, medieval Islam. And then the Ottomans were basically uh, commentators uh, on these uh, classical texts. Uh, they did not produce uh, much. Uh, they only learned uh, and continued with that uh, knowledge. And that was quite uh, superficial uh, and not satisfactory uh, to me. So my purpose was uh, to actually put the Ottoman intellectual history on a map uh, in the broader uh, cartographic uh, space uh, of uh, both Islamic and world um, history um, and then um, identify uh, the unique features uh, of the Ottomans, not necessarily uh, their quote-unquote great contributions or original productions, uh, but what did they actually uh, think? Uh, which terms uh, were important? Which, which vocabulary uh, were important in their uh, cultural articulation uh, and more so uh, which was my field of interest uh, the political thoughts uh, so they inherited uh, a good number of texts ideas vocabulary uh, learning traditions so how did they engage uh, with those uh, how did they recreate uh, and what new meanings possibly uh, they um, they attributed uh, to the vocabulary uh, they received. And <clears throat> it's not getting too long. Uh, one may, uh, additional point uh, to that my historiographic uh, journey is, so in my early graduate days, uh, so one realization that actually really prompted me uh, to deeply study Ottoman intellectual history was that uh, in most uh, histories was simply assumed uh, that uh, vocabulary uh, doesn't change uh, over time. Uh, yeah. So when we see the most basic political vocabulary, including the sultan, the dawla, uh, the state, uh, the caliph, uh, it's automatically assumed uh, that caliphate meant same thing in the 10th century as well as in the 16th century. Uh, yet, uh, it was uh, easily noticeable uh, that these vocabularies have their own journeys. Uh, they continuously load and unload uh, meanings uh, based on uh, historical circumstances, based on uh, individual um, articulations, or intellectual uh, So we need to first identify uh, the very contextual and uh, specific meanings of those uh, vocabulary in order to understand and truly appreciate uh, what they meant uh, in a given context, uh, which is uh, the <clears throat> broader early Ottoman context for me. I admire so much about your historiographical contributions partially because the idea of golden age thinking in Islamic thought has, I believe, set us back significantly because we, as you meant, I mean, as, I mean, this is the subject of the book, we ignore Ottoman history when we think about contributions that they've done. Um, and even when you mentioned the idea of um, the, the fact that there's this conception that Ottomans simply wrote commentaries, 
it's really tragic that no one's really written about how these reception histories are intellectual contributions and great intellectual contributions in themselves. So I'm glad that this book is finally filling this huge gap in our knowledge. And it's so detailed. And I highly recommend that people pick it up and just digest it very slowly. Um, so we've been, you, you mentioned terms and one term that you don't directly invoke in the title, um, of the book, but it's sort of, it, it, it is quite central to how the book functions as a unit is the idea of Sufism. Um, and you do include the term mysticism in the title. So Sufism is often equated in Islamic studies with mysticism in popular culture. It's equated with mysticism. Um, and I struggle when I speak about Sufism, sort of what, how to translate Tasawwuf um, or Tasawwuf um, into English um, how to orient it, because of course we live in an age where Salafism, um, sort of neoconservative Islam runs um, high in our discourse. So how do you talk about Sufism in relation to all of these things? Is it, is it, how do you speak about Sufism in relation to Islamic law? These are the things I struggle with. And I, one of the descriptions I really enjoy of Sufism is that it's the heart of Islam. Um, so to ask you a very, very basic question, what is a Sufi? What is Sufism? What is the uh, Sort of what terms would you use to describe it and to sort of fit into Islamic thought? Oh, very good uh, question and a very broad one, <clears throat> of course. Uh, first off, um, I think Tasawwuf is inherently untranslatable. Uh, and I think we should keep uh, the term uh, in any language uh, when we think uh, about or through uh, Tasawwuf. Now, uh, I use, uh, and in literature, most uh, colleagues also use mysticism. Uh, I think mysticism is only a part of uh, Tasawwuf, uh, which could be used um, as well. So I would go as the general term uh, with Tasawwuf uh, and Sufism. And Sufism and Tasawwuf, I take, uh, I use interchangeably. Uh, and mysticism only a particular form of uh, or part of uh, tasawwuf. As to what a Sufi or Sufism uh, mean, uh, as I <clears throat> understand it, of course, um, these terms um, are contested both historically uh, by the Sufis uh, or to whom we call Sufis themselves. Uh, or by later scholars. So there is no disagreement uh, on the exact uh, definition of it. And I think this is unavoidable uh, and inherent uh, and very much embedded uh, in the very uh, Sufism or Tasawwuf, um, as I understand it. And that is, uh, I take Tasawwuf uh, or Sufism as, uh, of course, uh, as a disclaimer, I'm not a specialist uh, on Sufism. Uh, I only deal with Sufism to the extent uh, it correlates uh, to my broader topic of intellectual history, more particularly uh, to political thought. Uh, but in my observation, Sufism is a broad uh, reaction uh, or even a rebellion, uh, if you will, uh, in late uh, Abbasid uh, period, increasingly uh, evolved uh, from an ascetic, ascetic uh, thinking um, into an institutionalized <clears throat> uh, form of uh, piety or engagement uh, with knowledge uh, and norms. Uh, it is inherently um, antinomian, 
but not necessarily rejection of uh, everything, uh, but uh, in, uh, in to some degree also acceptance uh, or appropriation uh, of uh, knowledge and norms uh, by <clears throat> uh, through uh, a sophistic um, attitude. Uh, and what I mean uh, by that is more specifically um, is uh, by, let's say, the 10th century, uh, we have uh, the classical Islamic disciplines uh, quite sophisticated, uh, including jurisprudence, fuqh, uh, theology, kalam, uh, philosophy, or we can add to that uh, philosophy uh, as well. And all these um, areas or disciplines uh, of knowledge <coughs> production uh, sets their own uh, norms, uh, and most are related, uh, I'm talking about, uh, of course, within the confines of <coughs> Islam, um, and uh, this created <coughs> normativeness uh, in Islam, uh, which increasingly uh, meant uh, confining uh, or limiting uh, for anybody uh, who is uh, willing to live, act, think, perform outside uh, these confines. Added to this, <clears throat> uh, many essential questions uh, about the truth uh, in Islam uh, went unresolved, uh, taken to sectarian uh, differences uh, in Kalam schools or juristic uh, schools, the political divisions, uh, they just produce their own canons uh, of expressions. Uh, so all these questions, including, for example, a good uh, example I can give is uh, whether the Quran is God's word uh, or not. Uh, so it's not resolved. Uh, it's just uh, certain schools um, aligned with political authorities uh, gained uh, prevalence over uh, the others. Uh, so many such questions uh, became increasingly uh, frozen uh, and were not leading uh, to new inquiries uh, or explanations. Now, added to that uh, is the political uh, sense of failure, uh, let's say. In the 10th century, now we have three, uh, at least three caliphs, one in uh, Spain, one in Egypt, one in uh, Baghdad. Uh, so there's a sense uh, that uh, the the idealized Ummah uh, or Muslims or Islam is divided, uh, fragmented. Uh, so there is increasing um, attitude or pursuit uh, to go beyond uh, the confines imposed by the very political order as well as uh, the epistemological order. Um, I would say. So in that context, we can only understand the rise of uh, Sufism as uh, a new attitude uh, to engage with the uh, perceived uh, truth uh, by uh, going through uh, or beyond and above uh, the set norms uh, of acceptable uh, knowledge and uh, behavior. So we know early ascetics uh, uh, withdrew uh, from society 
but later on, especially from 11th century onwards, uh, we see increasingly uh, uh, the persons who called themselves uh, or who were known as dervishes, uh, Sufis, uh, whatnot, uh, increasingly became more engaged uh, with uh, with uh, the disciplines uh, in the sense that both um, scholarly disciplines uh, and the political uh, and social uh, disciplines um, and assimilated them and worked uh, through them um, and with the prospect of uh, reopening uh, further possibilities uh, of uh, inquiry uh, into what is a good human being, uh, what is good society, what is good morality, what is a proper understanding of uh, the divine, uh, what is proper uh, piety. So I would say it was first uh, the critical reaction to the established uh, order, uh, and then which turned increasingly uh, in few uh, very discernible uh, attitudes. One was defiance uh, of it, and this, uh, the other attitude uh, was <clears throat> uh, appropriation uh, of it, uh, and then uh, working uh, through it uh, by assimilating uh, that order uh, into uh, a new type of engagement uh with the with the truth uh and the uh and the divine and we can add to this of course uh the uh, 11th century uh catastrophic uh developments uh which is uh the crusades uh first uh and then a century later uh the mongols uh, are coming uh into the Muslims. so all these upheavals um, led to the institutionalization uh, or uh, the uh, the organizational uh, advancement uh, or the transformation of individual uh, Sufism into more organizational uh, entities. Uh, so we see in the uh, 12th century, uh, for example, the rise of uh, Sufi orders, uh, which is a totally new uh, development uh, in the history of uh, Islamic uh, world uh, because there was no uh, such uh, community. Uh, they are not ordinary jama'as as before. Uh, they are not ordinary schools of thought. Uh, they are not ordinary sects uh, as in Hanafis and uh, Matur. It's a completely different attitude uh, towards understanding and living uh, Islam, it has in it all sorts of uh, divergences and differences and conflicts uh, as well. But at the core, uh, it's, um, it defies uh, the set norms, uh, both by the political order and the epistemological order uh, existing uh, at the time, and emerged uh, as pretty much uh, self-sustaining uh, political, social, uh, and uh, religious orders, including uh, its uh, its epistemological uh, autonomy, in the sense 
uh, that uh, they have a closely knit social organization. Uh, they have uh, an authority figure, uh, which uh, is not um, affiliated uh, with any political order. Uh, and then they also uh, have the uh, claim or liberty uh, to directly uh, actually engage uh, with the scriptures uh, by putting aside uh, the inherited knowledge uh, which is uh, scrutinized uh, and sanctioned uh, by uh, rationality. Uh, so that's uh, the, all these put limits uh, on the way uh, and scope of understanding uh, the truth uh, or deity uh, or the divine. Uh, so all these now were subjected uh, to a new form of um, understanding uh, of Islam, which is uh, the spiritual. And here, um, I think it's very telling uh, that uh, in the usage of the time, and it's a legacy still exists uh, in many uh, Middle Eastern languages at least, uh, it's Manevi. Uh, we call it or translate as spiritual, uh, which is true. Uh, it means spiritual, but also it means uh, meaning uh, or meaningful. Uh, also, ma'na uh, is both spiritual uh, and the meaning. So there is cross correlation uh, here between what is considered spiritual and what is considered as uh, meaningful. Uh, so it's a search uh, for a new uh, meaning beyond uh, these rationalized uh, and inherited uh, meanings uh, drawn uh, from from scriptures uh, and texts. So it is uh, a new understanding uh, of Islam beyond the text, uh, beyond the uh, norms, um, I would say. And that increasingly turned um, into uh, an uh, <clears throat> autonomous uh, series of movements uh, in Eurasia, and of which I think um, Anatolia became one of the epicenters. Can you expand on that? Because I think, and this is one of the points of the book, is that sort of Turkey... Uh, not Turkey, Turkish language materials, Turkish speakers have been marginalized in Islamic studies. And even though you don't necessarily consider yourself an Islamicist, this book, I think, will act against that assumption, this sort of Arabic centricism that exists in our field, which to some extent is justified, to some extent it's not. So how do Anatolian Sufis fit this narrative of Sufism, especially because, as you mentioned, you sort of have the calamitous um, the calamity that hits uh, the Middle East during the Middle Ages. So how do, and the the evolution of Sufi orders out of that, how do Anatolian Sufis fit into this narrative? I think Anatolia became uh, the frontier uh, of this new experimentation uh, because as, as I uh, tried to outline, it is both an epistemic movement uh, and a social movement. Uh, so at the core of it, uh, there is a defiance, but more uh, there is a new attitude, a uh, new inquiry, uh, which is uh, above and beyond uh, the rational uh, limits. And why Anadolu became uh, one of the, at least one of the, if not the uh, epicenter 
of that moment uh, was uh, that because uh, by and large, Anatolia was uh, at the frontier uh, of uh, major learning centers of uh, the Muslim world. Uh, well, few cities, of course, had learning institutions, uh, but not on the same scale uh, as Cairo, Damascus, uh, or Samarkand. Uh, and secondly, uh, it was a very fragmented uh, place, uh, politically and socially, uh, not only diverse, uh, but also fragmented. Uh, so uh, there was no uh, order uh, that could impose uh, a particular uh, either epistemological um, or moral, legal, political uh, discipline over the entire uh, society. Uh, the Seljuk rule was quite loose uh, and then it was broken uh, by the Mongols, uh, which made Anatolia quite attractive uh, for uh, this new uh, line of uh, thinking uh, or engagement uh, with the truth uh, or new forms of uh, pieties. So it attracted uh, Sufis from all around the world. We see uh, Ibn Arabi uh, ending up uh, in Anatolia and it's, it cannot be accidental. Uh, we see Rumi, uh, actually his father, uh, is ending up in uh, Anatolia. We see disciples of Ahmed Yasevi, uh, who was uh, a very uh, authoritative, uh, charismatic figure in Central Asia. And most prominent disciples uh, of him ended up in uh, Anatolia because they could um, actually express uh, their uh, new discoveries, uh, spiritual explorations uh, and turn them into uh, at the same time a social reality uh, without finding much uh, opposition uh, or obstacles uh, from political or social uh, authorities. Uh, so in a way, uh, it was uh, a place more conducive uh, for the articulation uh, of these new ideas uh, or forms of pieties. So the early Ottomans, of course, loom large in this book because the period that your book covers is not long after the conquest of Istanbul itself. Um, and the main bulk of the book focuses on the 16th century. So a basic question, how did the Ottomans see themselves? How did they conceptualize their own political and religious authority? The Ottomans are actually only one of these newly emerging uh, orders uh, in Anatolia at the time. And I tend to, uh, and actually I, the way I portrayed it uh, in the book, uh, is that the Ottomans, uh, in terms of their claims uh, to authority, uh, were not so much uh, different than other Sufi orders. So Sufi orders in Anatolia uh, were at the same time political orders uh, because they, they were not uh, subjugated uh, to other uh, existing political orders. Uh, so the Ottomans uh, were only one of them. Uh, they were competing, actually, uh, one of them. The only difference was uh, the Ottomans lacked 
the epistemological uh, claim uh, or the spiritual claim. They were purely uh, a political order, whereas uh, the Sufi orders, uh, such as uh, the Mevlevis uh, or um, or Bektashis, uh, the Abdalan orders, or many other uh, antinomian uh, or nomian uh, Sufi orders uh, in the region, uh, were emerging as um, as social and political uh, orders uh, with their own means of sustaining uh, their uh, their communities uh, and their networks. Uh, they were all expansive uh, and expanding, uh, and uh, on pretty much. Uh, at will, uh, not just uh, charismatic uh, movements uh, fetching uh, popular support, uh, but they were actually making alliances uh, and converting people uh, to their own uh, truth claim uh, and expanding their uh, order. So that brought uh, the Ottomans uh, in uh, conflict uh, with those uh, orders. So in that uh, context, I think uh, we have to distinguish uh, between who the Ottomans were first and what the uh, what it meant uh, to be Ottoman. So if I could uh, go over these uh, very briefly um, until we come to the uh, 16th century. Um, in the beginning, uh, let's say at the turn of the 14th century, uh, there is no evidence that the Ottomans uh, were noticeable. Uh, they were barely. Uh, noticeable. They were at best uh, a household um, in a in a tribal uh, nomadic uh, society. Only um, in the 15th century. Of course, I am uh, talking about very broad uh, processes and developments here, overlooking the specifics. Uh, only in the 15th century, uh, the Ottomans became more noticeable in terms of uh, their court. Uh, and their uh, allies. Uh, in the 16th century, uh, when we uh, talk about the Ottomans, now we have a very uh, structured, uh, institutionalized ruling elite, which includes uh, the court, uh, the bureaucracy, uh, the military, uh, and at least uh, the learning establishment. Uh, now, these are the uh, Ottomans who were barely noticeable uh, still in the 14th century. As to what the Ottoman, uh, the term Ottoman meant, uh, again, in the 14th century, in all likelihood, uh, it didn't mean anything. Uh, So uh, only uh, patronage relationship uh, to the Ottoman household may uh, be called as uh, one's affiliation with the house of uh, Ottomans, but other than that, being an Ottoman, uh, I'm not sure whether the term uh, itself uh, existed uh, or not. But from the early 15th century um, onwards, uh, the term Ottoman grew beyond uh, a reference, being a reference uh, to uh, to a household, uh, and it was. Uh, increasingly uh, elaborated uh, and filled with uh, important uh, content. Uh, so uh, the three most 
significant components of being an Ottoman uh, from 15th century onwards were. Uh, one was uh, being a Rumi. Uh, so their connection uh, to the land, which means the land of the former Roman uh, Empire. So they were the rulers uh, of the uh, Roman Empire. Uh, hence uh, the Rumi. But Rumi then increasingly uh, developed into a cultural uh, identity as well. And then uh, as part of uh, the confession, Islam uh, became a lot more uh, pronounced uh, and consciously genealogies uh, were uh, drawn to better connect the Ottomans uh, to the uh, Islamic uh, tradition. Uh, and then uh, there were Turks, uh, ethnically. Uh, the Oguz genealogies uh, started to be drawn, uh, tying uh, the Ottomans uh, to legendary uh, Oguz uh, rulers in Central Asia, uh, as opposed to uh, the Genghisid, more prestigious uh, Genghisid lineages uh, promoted by the Mongol uh, rulers. So three main components uh, of being an Ottoman in the 15th century uh, were Rumis, uh, the, the uh, servants or fighters for uh, Islam, uh, and there being uh, Turks uh, from the August uh, genealogy. Uh, in the course of late 15th century and throughout 16th uh, century, uh, the Ottoman, uh, being Ottoman, uh, actually uh, was elaborated uh, by uh, myth makers uh, of uh, the Ottoman uh, dynasty or state, uh, we could now say. Uh, and uh, the specific components are very uh, wide and diverse, uh, but at the core, the idea uh, that uh, the Ottomans now represent an epochal uh, turn of uh, global uh, or universal uh, order uh, came increasingly uh, believed and propagated uh, from the Ottoman center uh, <clears throat> to, the, uh, to the empires. Uh, namely, uh, the Devla, Devla Osmania, just as uh, the Abbasid uh, Devla. Devla, now here, uh, we need to say a few words. Um, in Commonly and superficially rendered um, as, uh, as a state, uh, it's uh, much more than a state. Devla um, here means, uh, at least in the 16th century, um, articulations. Uh, that it's an epochal uh, order world order, uh, that in every, um, there are few ages, long uh, ages uh, in human history, uh, in which uh, a universal order was established uh, with divine uh, providence. Uh, now it is a turn uh, of the Ottomans, uh, therefore it is a turn of the uh, Rumis. Uh, so Ottomans, um, commonly uh, referred uh, to uh, the Abbasid Dewle as the turn of the um, uh, Arabs uh, or to some uh, turn of the Persians uh, because some consider Abbasids as uh, the Persian uh, turn. Uh, so the, that order collapsed 
uh, and now it's the turn uh, of the uh, autumn. So that's what uh, Ottomanness meant uh, in the 16th uh, century. Uh, and of course, what made uh, the Ottomans worthy uh, of that uh, of that uh, term uh, was elaborated uh, by a host of his- mostly historians, uh, but also uh, political uh, authors. Uh, they highlighted uh, some of the unique uh, features uh, of Ottoman rulers uh, or Ottoman ruling uh, elite uh, that made that showed or attempted to show uh, that the Ottomans uh, are different not only from their predecessors uh, but from their contemporary uh, rivals. Uh, therefore, uh, they were uh, picked uh, divinely. Uh, to be uh, to establish the uh, uh, aw- in most cases the awaited uh, order uh, or unity uh, universal order and unity uh, in that uh, age. Uh, so Ottomanness became a very strong uh, identity, not just political identity, uh, but a spiritual um, and uh, a, a cultural identity as well. So how did this idea of being Ottoman intersect with the idea of a caliphate and also the idea of a sultanate? Because both concepts loom very large in your book. Caliphate probably more than sultanate. Yeah, that's the Ottomans' engagement uh, with the caliphate um, was very gradual. Uh, but first we have to uh, say a few words uh, about the the general understanding of uh, the caliphate in uh, our current historiography uh, and then what it meant uh, for the Ottomans or how the Ottomans engaged uh, with the very um, idea of the caliphate, I would say, not the institution of the caliphate. So it's often uh, reported that the Ottomans inherited uh, or claimed the caliphate after they invaded Egypt uh, in 1517 uh, because there was still a living Abbasid caliph uh, under the protection of the Mamluks. Since then, the Ottomans called themselves caliphs uh, and the Ottoman dynasty or the Ottoman sultana turned into uh, a caliphate uh, all the way uh, to the end of it. This is not what the Ottomans thought of themselves, uh, and we don't see any historical uh, evidence that actually uh, took place. Uh, It was barely, barely noticeable uh, by Ottoman uh, statesmen uh, or historians uh, that uh, the Ottomans actually uh, took the caliphate, uh, or there was a caliphate uh, to begin with uh, residing in uh, Egypt. Uh, So... Uh, with the Abbasid uh, decline uh, and end, uh, the caliphate uh, basically got lost. Uh, the historical institutional uh, caliphate ended along with the Abbasids. Uh, afterwards, uh, and actually it's a trend uh, which started even before uh, the Abbasids, uh, that the term uh, caliph uh, was receiving more and more uh, 
visibility among the royal um, epithets. Uh, so many um, rulers here and there uh, started to use the caliph uh, as one of their royal uh, titles. Uh, so how could they use uh, the caliph while uh, there was a caliph or, or even well, and after the Abbasid's uh, destruction, uh, what did they mean? What did it mean uh, for any ruler uh, to use the word caliph? Uh, it didn't mean much in terms of uh, sovereignty because the Abbasid caliphs used uh, the, uh, as their sovereign titles, uh, they used uh, the commander of the faithful. Uh, the Amir al-Mu'mini. So no other ruler, uh, at least under the Abbasids, were permitted uh, to use that title. That was the exclusive title of Abbasid uh, caliphs. But uh, as an honorific uh, title or self-designation or self-description, uh, anybody could use uh, the caliph uh, or self-designate uh, as caliph, and that was it was no difference uh, for the Ottomans. Let's say in the 14th century, uh, we have a ton of uh, historical evidence that the Ottomans called themselves caliphs. They used the title uh, in the 15th century. Uh, they used the title. Uh, so in a way, from the very beginning, uh, the old Ottoman rulers uh, were uh, caliphs uh, according to their self. Uh, assessments. Uh, so here the question is, what did actually uh, caliphate uh, mean uh, for these particularly post-Abbasid uh, rulers? Did they really um, claim uh, the lost universal authority of the Abbasids uh, as, uh, in, in the same way as that uh, in the historical uh, caliphate uh, or not? And, and I, uh, of course, I can speak only for the Ottomans, uh, but for the broader Islamic world, I would say uh, the contrary. Uh, I don't see any strategic conscious effort uh, on the part of any ruler uh, to refashion uh, himself or his dynasty or his state uh, to be the next uh, universal historical caliphate. Of course, all these dynasties and rulers claimed to have inherited uh, the caliphate, uh, but they did not uh, pursue uh, the same universal order established by the early historical uh, caliphate. So with the Abbasids, historical caliphate uh, basically and effectively uh, ended. Uh, so the claims for the <clears throat> caliphate or those designations uh, for the caliphate meant something. Uh, we can only understand uh, the Ottoman caliphate um, when we understand the Sufi understanding uh, of the caliphate. But uh, even um, more importantly, I think we need to um, have a broader uh, view of um, authority uh, in the Islamic or Islamic uh, tradition. Now, I would not like to engage uh, with the very early debates on the nature of uh, authority, 
but uh, for for our topic, uh, at least uh, the topic of the book, uh, as far as it goes, uh, we can say uh, that towards the late Abbasid period, uh, and definitely so at the time when the Ottomans uh, were about to emerge, uh, the general understanding of uh, authority was uh, the quest to unify, reunify uh, what is the authority which was widely believed uh, to have been uh, fragmented. Uh, and what I mean by that, it became um, quite clear uh, in various strands of Islamic uh, thought uh, to, uh, to understand um, the true nature of the Prophet Muhammad's uh, authority. Now, by this time, by and large, uh, the ulama, the scholars, thought that uh, the Prophet's uh, nubuwa, uh, which means his scholarly legislative uh, authority was the most important nature of him. Therefore, we represent uh, that nature. And uh, the rulers, the worldly temporal rulers, thought, uh, based on uh, what especially men in of statecraft or uh, <clears throat> literature on political thought uh, tell us, they claimed that uh, the prophet as uh, a ruler, uh, the prophet as imam, uh, the prophet as a representative of uh, the ultimate representative uh, of uh, executive power uh, on earth was the most important component of his authority, and it's we who represent uh, that authority. Uh, and that was actually mostly... Um, what was a, a sort of a balance uh, during the Abbasid times, uh, the ulama versus uh, the Abbasid caliphs. Uh, of course, these uh, claims of authority crisscrossed all the time, but more or less uh, the ulama retained their uh, autonomy by claiming uh, that they represent uh, this important component of prophet's uh, authority, uh, whereas uh, the rulership presents uh, the executive power uh, of the prophet. But increasingly, these Sufis start to talk about a third nature uh, of the prophet, uh, and that is uh, the spiritual nature. Uh, he's being friend of uh, God. Uh, so they claimed walaya, uh, uh, which means friendship uh, of God, uh, the spiritual uh, the sainthood, uh, of uh, prophethood, if you will, uh, is the most important component uh, of uh, what it means to be a prophet. Uh, and who represents uh, that component? Uh, it's we, uh, not the scholars who learn uh, Islam from texts, not the rulers uh, who claim to have inherited uh, the political power uh, of the prophet, but it is we, uh, the Sufis, uh, and of course not the general Sufis, uh, but the sheikhs uh, or Quds, uh by this time they 
uh, call it the Axis Mundi. Uh, uh, the <clears throat> as they called it, uh, there was an unbroken uh, chain or lineage or genealogy of authority from the prophet down uh, to the holder of that uh, authority, and that is Walaya, uh, that is sainthood. Uh, and uh, both the scholarly authority of the ulama or the executive authority of the temporal rulers are to be uh, submitted uh, to the prophet's sainthood because sainthood comes uh, first. There is also an, a very strong epistemological emphasis uh, on this new claim of uh, authority because the Sufis in the main uh, claimed that uh, the, the, uh, the knowledge, the most, the, the, the hierarchized knowledge uh, as well. Now they started to uh, speak in terms of um, gnosis uh, or experiential knowledge, uh, which uh, they often uh, label as irfan uh, rather than ilim. So ilim is inherited. Uh, it is studied, it is learned, and you are limited by your mental, rational capacities to what extent uh, you can reach or understand or interpret uh, the truth. Um, there may be uh, false reports in the chain uh, that you learn, uh, and you may be limited uh, by your rational uh, faculty. So that's why they uh, thought Irfan is a higher form of knowledge because it doesn't require any of these uh, intermediaries. Uh, no texts, uh, no rational inquiry uh, are needed. Uh, it is uh, the kind of knowledge only that could be experienced. Uh, and uh, it does, so it's a direct engagement uh, with the divine. Uh, so they think the once uh, when the prophet even uh, legislates, it comes after um, his this unmediated engagement uh, with the uh, divine. So in short, uh, on both ontological and epistemological grounds, <coughs> wilaya or prophet sainthood prevails uh, over the other two natures uh, of the. Uh, prophet and the Sufis claimed that they represent uh, this, but this doesn't resolve uh, the overall question of uh, the divided authority. Uh, so it's, it, it paints a very clear picture uh, that the ideal, the proper authority represented in the persona of the prophet was uh, broken broken between uh, temporal rulers uh, and the collective authority of the ulama and now uh, the Sufis. So this new pursuit, uh, which we see uh, perhaps more clearly um, in the Anatolia of uh, 12th and 13th and 14th centuries, uh, is to reunify. Uh, all these uh, authorities. Now, how do you uh, do it? Only in that pursuit, uh, the term caliphate 
uh, <clears throat> served uh, and functioned uh, as the most useful one. It could be any other uh, term, of course, which they use. Could uh, pretty much uh, thought to be in the same way. Imam, uh, at times, uh, they attributed the same um, content uh, to Imam or Gauss, the helper, uh, a sister, or Sheikh, uh, sometimes uh, they, uh, uh, they defined uh, it. Is, but the most prominent term here uh, was the redefinition uh, of the uh, caliphate by uh, relatively divesting it of its historical um, experiential um, uh, material components uh, or the temporal uh, components uh, and by redefining it by directly uh, alluding uh, to the chronic uh, definitions of uh, the caliphate, uh, which in which uh, the most widely used verse, the chronic verse about caliphate was God's creation of Adam as his uh, vice regent or deputy on earth in his own uh, image. Uh, so the Sufis uh, then took this uh, notion of the caliphate, not the historical caliphate, uh, that Abu Bakr was taught to have uh, received and passed on uh, to other uh, caliphs, uh, but this very cosmic um, idea uh, of the caliphate, uh, which accords one uh, a universal authority uh, rather than a contractual uh, community-based uh, authority. And this caliphate now increasingly uh, promoted as an overarching uh, authority uh, which uh, uh, prevails over both temporal uh, authority of the uh, rulers or the executive power uh, and the um, authority of the scholars, uh, the, the ulama. Uh, so uh, the caliphate was redefined um, in a way uh, that uh, embeds in it both political uh, and uh, scholarly uh, or epistemological uh, authorities in addition uh, to its uh, being representative uh, of, uh, of God's direct uh, presence, uh, which means the spiritual <clears throat> uh, authority. So once uh, Anatolian uh, Sufi orders started to articulate these views very clearly <clears throat> without any doubt um, and um, turned it into action, uh, namely, uh, let's take the example of Mevlevi's for example, Rumi, uh, who was credited to have founded uh, the Mevlevi order, he considered himself, uh, and it's very obvious uh, in his own writings as well as uh, in his hagiography, which became a very uh, popular read, uh, that he considered his authority above both the collective authority of the ulama uh, and all the worldly rulers. Uh, and he considered 
worthy rulers if they submit to his authority as his commanders uh, uh, on the ground. Uh, but his authority was to be uh, above them because his authority is overarching uh, in all three natures uh, of the uh, prophet. So that meant uh, a, a, a very unavoidable uh, clash uh, between the temporal rulers uh, of Anatolia and these new spiritual uh, orders. Uh, the uh, the working relationship was from the very beginning uh, to uh, to reach an agreement uh, between the claimants of these uh, authorities. We have plenty of uh, perhaps uh, fabricated scenes uh, in hagiographies, but obviously something worked out uh, between those uh, political rulers. Uh, and uh, and sheikhs or mystics or Sufi leaders uh, that uh, those Sufi leaders are accepted uh, as being higher uh, authorities, uh, whereas uh, in return uh, those ru- uh, earthly rulers uh, were blessed and sanctioned and supported uh, by these uh, leaders of Sufi orders as being. Uh, uh, the uh, legitimate uh, rulers, uh, commanders uh, of the uh, of the uh, faithful. Uh, for example, uh, in one scene, uh, Rumi's grandson uh, actually um, appoints uh, one ruler, Aydinolu uh, Mehmet, the Mehmet of uh, Aydinit, as the Sultan of Ghazis, uh, the Sultan of uh, Raiders uh, for the Faith. So it's a working uh, relationship. In that uh, arrangement, uh, the worldly ruler has still full liberty and autonomy as long as uh, he only recognizes uh, the holy, uh, saintly Sufi leaders' overarching uh, authority uh, because he doesn't interfere uh, with day-to-day matters of uh, running the state. Uh, it's just uh, the understanding that he is running things behind uh, the material uh, world. Uh, if that arrangement doesn't work, then these Sufi orders uh, had the potential and in practice uh, turned into political moments per se. Uh, one good example is uh, Baba Ilyas uprising against Saljukits, uh, which uh, Baba Ilyas, a very charismatic Sufi leader, defied the entire uh, Saljuk order uh, and claimed to have reunified uh, the broken authority represented uh, uh, by various authorities after the uh, Prophet. Uh, and almost brought down uh, the Seljuk rulers. A very similar example um, is the Bedrettin Rebellion uh, in the early 15th century um, Ottoman Empire, but these are very well-known, widespread uh, Sufi rebellions. There are countless um, other um, um, outward, ostentatious um, claims uh, or rebellions 
uh, by Sufis, either suppressed uh, or uh, or, <clears throat> or ended with agreement uh, with the uh, with the rulers. A good example again. Uh, by the way, uh, that doesn't mean uh, the conflict or the clash was only between worldly rulers and these new breed of Sufi leaders. Uh, the Sufi leaders uh, were even more bitter terms uh, with one another. Uh, the Anatolian Ahis, uh, for example, uh, the Sufi order which uh, mostly uh, spread among the craftsmen uh, and artisans, were in very, very bitter terms uh, with the Mevlevis, uh because they were both in urban uh, settings uh, and they were having similar uh, claims, um, therefore uh, in obvious conflict uh, with each other. But the most, uh, more obvious conflict was uh, between uh, the Abdalans, uh, or more specifically the Bektashis, uh, and the Rumis. The Ottomans uh, struck a deal, obviously, uh, with the Abdalan or the Bektashis, who were mostly uh, based in the rural areas, uh, in the countryside. And uh, they were the uh, spiritual patrons uh, of the Ottomans, uh, and the Ottomans supported their um, expansion uh, into Western Anatolia and the Balkans, uh, by recognizing uh, them uh, as uh, their spiritual uh, patrons, during which, uh, especially in the fifth, uh, 14th century, uh, the Ottomans promoted uh, the Bektashis, uh, Abdalans, or vice versa. But we don't see any Rumi or Mevlevi, uh, Mevlevi presence in Ottoman lands uh, for more than a century uh, because uh, obviously the Ottomans recognized as their spiritual patrons uh, the Bektashis or Abdalans, not uh, the Mevlevis. And Mevlevis and Bektashis pretty much at odds uh, with each other. Only after uh, the Bedrettin Rebellion uh, in the 15th century, uh, the Ottomans uh, invited uh, Mevlevis uh, to take hold. Uh, in Ottoman lands. Uh, And that tells us a good deal about the Ottoman engagement uh, with the idea uh, of the uh, caliphate. On the one hand, uh, the typical early Ottoman engagement was uh, just um, to recognize uh, that authority of the... uh, And on individual basis, of course, every Sufi order's leader... Uh, had the uh, impression that the Ottoman ruler recognizes that person uh, as the true authority. Uh, as long as that is uh, a range or tacit understanding established, uh, those um, Sufi leaders do not intervene uh, with the daily management of uh, the Ottoman uh, state. But as time uh, progressed, uh, Ottoman lands uh, were increasingly populated uh, by all sorts of uh, Sufi orders and organizations and uh, 
uh, individual, um, some charismatic, some uh, rebellious, uh, some antinomian uh, Sufi personalities. Um, and those inevitably uh, created uh, tensions uh, both among the Sufi orders and between the Sufis um, and the Ottomans. And <clears throat> we see that the Ottomans uh, mostly uh, through uh, the employment of uh, Sufi-minded uh, or affiliated personalities in Ottoman uh, service, either as uh, bureaucrats, uh, judges, uh, even military leaders, etc. Uh, so they increasingly now uh, fashioned uh, Ottoman ruler in uh, Sufi terms. We see that, uh, especially in the latter half of uh, the 15th century, in which uh, the early Ottoman mythology uh, was basically uh, recrafted uh, in, in a way uh, to show uh, the founding figure Osman uh, as a holy uh, figure, as a saintly uh, figure uh, who was supported uh, by the divine. And in fact, uh, we know the famous dream, uh, Osman's uh, dream. Uh, in that dream, uh, actually, uh, it is very obvious uh, that the Ottoman authority represents uh, the convergence of both uh, spiritual and temporal authorities because Osman marries uh, the daughter of uh, one of the most prominent uh, Sufi leaders uh, of the time. So all these uh, helped uh, Ottomans uh, to refashion themselves, recast themselves, uh, in the same imageries or vocabulary as Sufi leaders. Uh, so when we come to 16th century, basically uh, the Ottoman ruler or the Ottoman caliph was same as uh, the Sufi uh, leader uh, or Sufi uh, caliph. So what are the genres that your writers and your political thinkers writing in? Oh, they are, first of all, they kept writing uh, in all conventional genres. Uh, so including mirrors for princes, ethics, uh, juristic works, uh, philosophical works, administrative manuals, histories, hagiographies, uh, etc. So there is no major... Uh, rupture or uh, innovation uh, in terms of which genre uh, they write. So what is uh, important uh, and quite, uh, I would say, novel in this period is uh, first uh, the infusion uh, of different strains of uh, thought in works uh, with political content, uh, let's say. Uh, so in any given work, uh, you could see uh, elements of philosophy, uh, jurisprudence, theology, literature, uh, etc. And that is uh, because uh, there, there may be many reasons, but one reason is uh, a new type of uh, readership uh, 
uh, evolved uh, in this uh, period. So rather than uh, becoming uh, necessarily a scholar uh, in a particular discipline and be confined uh, with that discipline, uh, a typical Ottoman uh, learned person uh, would be engaged uh, in multiple traditions uh, um, of intellectual history, including literature and Islamic uh, sciences. And when they write uh, on political uh, thought, uh, they tend to uh, think through uh, the variables of different uh, Islamic uh, disciplines and uh, traditions. And secondly, uh, the political literature became more and more uh, current in the sense uh, that it, it became less um, idealistic uh, and more uh, about uh, current uh, questions. Uh, so, uh, especially with the decline of uh, decline and end of uh, the Abbasid Empire. Uh, the questions of rulership or good governance uh, became very different from one context uh, to another. So political literature, I think, as a broad, uh, broader uh, trend, uh, became a lot more tuned uh, to contextual uh, problems. And thirdly, perhaps, uh, it became uh, more moralistic uh, in the sense that uh, the ultimate goal of writing on rulership or governance, government, uh, was to turn uh, the political authority into uh, a morally acceptable one from uh, one's own perspective. Uh, so depends on who you are, uh, you could be primarily a Sufi author or primarily a juristic uh, author, your pursuit was to turn uh, the existing, uh, the unavoidably existing uh, authority into a... So it is moralistic and uh, reformist. Uh, it's not idealistic. It's not aiming uh, to uh, philosophize uh, or... Uh, think of uh, having uh, uh, it's not discussing ideal forms of uh, government it's just a very basic question of how to turn the existing uh, ruler into a moral uh, one because uh, there is not much uh, chance uh, of immediate uh, transformation or shaping uh, the structure of political authority but they can influence uh, the behavior, uh, the functioning of uh, political authority, so it turned increasingly uh, moralistic. Only in the 16th century, uh, we see a drastically new genre uh, emerge, uh, but which I do not uh, cover uh, in the book, and that is uh, the a new type of writing specifically uh, focuses on statecraft. Uh, so uh, disregarding moralistic uh, or personal aspects of uh, rulership, uh, but focusing on uh, the customs, 
the laws, uh, the procedures and institutions uh, have of um, running uh, the government uh, or uh, the proper functioning of uh, political authority. So one thing I was really shocked by during our correspondence prior to this interview is that you don't necessarily consider yourself a specialist on Sufism, nor do you consider yourself strictly an Islamicist. And, and, and you sort of reference this in your last answer in that this is political thought. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, because it struck me, I was shocked when I saw that. I was like, wow, your knowledge, and I think even listening to you speak now, your knowledge of Sufism and of Islam generally is so thick and dense that I couldn't help but think that you belong to all of these genres of history writing. Yes, uh, political thought, I think, uh, an area which uh, relates uh, to all other um, intellectual pursuits. Uh, so it, it's, it's one area which cannot be studied in isolation. Uh, so I'm not only talking about uh, contextualizing it. I'm not only talking about um, going beyond uh, the idealistic frameworks uh, or great thinkers uh, approach, but I'm also talking about uh, a very intellectual uh, pursuit of um, uh, thinking about rulership <clears throat> and uh, through which means um, I mean intellectual uh, strains of uh, thought uh, as well as uh, vocabulary uh, ideas uh, theories uh, the questions uh, and how one uh, relates oneself uh, not only to the broader questions uh, of his faith tradition or society uh, or uh, government, but how he uh, understands and redefines uh, the very um, political uh, vocabulary um, and uh, terms. So when thinking through uh, these, I observed uh, that um, political thought cannot be studied only on the basis of political uh, texts, so to speak. So we need to uh, take into consideration uh, pretty much any other articulation uh, of political ideals, uh, which, in, by the way, uh, many of them may not um, clearly sound like political uh, so we need to, first of all, understand what political may have meant uh, at the time. So anything related uh, to uh, the notion of authority uh, or governance uh, need to be taken into consideration. So histories, hagiographies, uh, works of uh, literature, um, they all need to be taken uh, into uh, consideration. Now, um, it, it unavoidably uh, brings one uh, to uh, a more close a close engagement uh, with the question of language. 
because all these authors are uh, basically dealing with texts engage with uh, with language uh, which language they use uh, to read uh, comment on and which they lang- which language they use uh, to articulate uh, their uh, views and they we see that uh, from the uh, 15th century onwards uh, a new type of uh, readership uh, formed uh, in Ottoman society, perhaps in other uh, contemporaneous societies uh, as well. And they are uh, readers on uh, political matters. I think that development is very uh, important. We see that, uh, especially in the circulation of uh, texts uh, and the authorship of texts. So we see um, that uh, rank-and-file people uh, writing about rulership, uh, which means uh, so broader sections of society now considering themselves um, uh, engaged uh, with the question of uh, rulership uh, or proper authority uh, or governance. Uh, And we also see these texts uh, are actually read uh, by broader sections uh, of uh, the society. Now, um, if we think that m- many texts uh, were written uh, as performative texts uh, in this period, uh, so not uh, as a book uh, in the way we know it today, uh, something uh, today we buy a book and read it uh, on our own. Uh, but then, in most cases, uh, a book would be read uh, in a public occasion, uh, in a gathering. Uh, so, especially so for these political uh, texts. Uh, so we see broader sections of society were interested uh, in governance. So that, of course, inherently changed uh, the number uh, and the form of uh, questions uh, that mattered. Uh, at the time. So in medieval times, a uh, set of political questions were pretty much confined uh, to the health, continuity, legitimacy uh, of the political authority. Uh, but now, uh, let's say in the 16th century, a host of issues are uh, now turned into political issues, uh, which may not have been considered as political uh, before. Uh, and we see especially uh, the Turkish uh, texts, because when written in Arabic or Persian, the readership uh, and the impact uh, were pretty uh, limited. Uh, but uh, we see Turkish rose as a language of literary articulation, and though, especially those texts uh, in Turkish found a much wider um, audience, uh, and that made uh, political thought a lot more complicated uh, area uh, to understand. So it's uh, realm, I would say, at latest by the 16th uh, century, uh, expanded. Uh, so just to give a very uh, basic uh, comparison, uh, of course, you may say the same thing, perhaps, uh, for the high Abbasid times as well. But when you read a typical uh, work, uh, on Abbasid political thought, 
uh, it is mostly about uh, a few thinkers. Uh, what did they think uh, about ideal form of uh, government? Uh, but in the 16th century um, Ottoman context, uh, perhaps it's same in the Mamluk or Mughal uh, contexts uh, as well, the questions uh, changed. Uh, more people are uh, engaged, uh, and there is not... And disciplinary confines are very uh, loose, so political thought became very uh, eclectic, uh, and the realm of politics uh, expanded. So thank you so much for all of this. I just have to congratulate you again on the book because it's so deep and so it touches so many different facets of knowledge. And it's just even listening to you speak right now, I'm just thinking about all the things I must have missed. <laughs> while reading the book. Um, so congratulations once again. And we always close the interview by asking, what are you currently working on? What projects do you have in the pipeline? Uh, my current project is actually um, a continuation of uh, one problem I dealt with in the book. Uh, and that is the function and impact of language uh, on culture and political formation, or even uh, on social order. And I tentatively uh, think that the rise of Turkish uh, as the not only vernacular, but the imperial cultural language uh, of the Ottoman Empire was not accidental or coincidental. Uh, it uh, had a lot to do with the way the Ottoman uh, society was formed, uh, the Ottoman state uh, was formed. Um, so in short, uh, in, the fifth, in the 14th century, we see the first examples of Turkish texts uh, were written, of which most uh, were translations. Uh, in the 15th century, we have uh, what we may call a translation movement uh, into uh, Turkish. So along the way, uh, Turkish texts became quite instrumental uh, in, uh, in the dissemination of knowledge uh, first and dissemination of uh, authority uh, because most Turkish texts were commissioned uh, by, at least in the Ottoman realm, uh, by Ottoman rulers, uh, which means uh, every text at the same time uh, was a propaganda tool uh, for the legitimacy of uh, the Ottoman uh, ruler. But they also had a more profound uh, impact in the sense uh, that Turkish was, you know, in the beginning considered as uh, a profane uh, language from a religious uh, perspective. So any articulation of religious views uh, was just quite not uh, legitimate or acceptable uh, by the learned uh, establishment. So I would say, especially by the help of Sufis, uh, again, thanks to their uh, antinomian and defiant uh, attitudes uh, towards the epistemological order uh, of classical uh, Islam, uh, Turkish texts uh, became uh, popular uh, to actually teach 
people are Islam, and many of which, of course, written from uh, Sufistic uh, perspectives. Uh, and Turkish, uh, in the process, uh, became uh, a wholly new uh, liturgical and authoritative uh, language uh, in which Uh, the most uh, sacred binding uh, canonical views uh, about Islamic worldview doctrines uh, engagement of truth could be articulated uh, and read uh, and taught through. Uh, so Turkish uh, became uh, a new language uh, of the broader uh, religion of Islam alongside um, Arabic and, uh, and Persian uh, but Uh, so that's uh, the cultural and religious uh, aspect of it. Uh, it has tremendous uh, repercussions um, on political and social formation as well uh, because uh, the Ottoman ruling elite uh, came to be conversant uh, in, in Turkish, which otherwise uh, would have been a very divided um, ruling elite. So Turkish was in many ways... Uh, instrumental, uh, if not foundational, uh, to the emergence of Ottoman uh, Empire um, in the narrowest sense, and Ottoman order uh, and culture uh, in the most broadest sense. Uh, so my new topic is just uh, focusing on the rise of uh, Turkish uh, in the 14th and 15th uh, centuries, mostly by looking into Uh, which texts uh, were written, uh, by whom, uh, and which vocabulary uh, developed, and how these texts disseminated, uh, performed, uh, read, uh, commented um, upon, and ultimately how they produced uh, a whole new uh, imperial language uh, related but apart Uh, from the vernacular of the uh, nomadic folks. That sounds like such an exciting project. And it's like, an, I mean, that was one of the things I admired the most about the book was the folk was the fact that it reattributed re to Turkish um, the status of scholarly language. So I think that's in itself a phenomenal scholarly achievement. So thank you so much for sitting down with me and speaking to me. And also, again, congratulations on the book and best of luck with future endeavors. Thank you very much. Glad to be here.